Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you this morning. Hey, if you were, or when you do, share the gospel or talk about the gospel to other people, whether that is someone who does not yet know Christ or someone within the church family, I'll bet most of us end up including, as we rightly should, the fact that Jesus came, that he died, bearing the sins of his people, rising on the third day, and on that, that amazing news that we now have forgiveness for everything we've ever done, past, present, future, fully forgiven, that our hearts are washed clean, that we're adopted as children. There's all kinds of implications of that. And that's right, and that's good, but there's more. There's a piece of the good news, which you've heard us mention this, uh, this kind of idea multiple times before, that there's a piece of the good news that often gets left out. And that is the return of Christ. See, Jesus made a promise to his disciples that he would return, and that when he comes back to earth to call all of his people to himself, that he's going to make a total and complete end of everything that's broken and wrong in this world. That Satan, sin, death, and all the effects of the curse will be undone. That our salvation will be complete. That our faith will give way to sight. And so that we won't just be freed from the power or the penalty of sin, but we're even one day going to be freed from the presence of sin and suffering. And for Christians, there is no greater news that wherever you sit in today, whatever suffering, whatever sin you're up against, that does not have final word over your life. Jesus' return is the fulfillment of what he began at the cross. That is part of the good news. This and the suffering that we experience is not the end. It's great news for those of us who love Jesus and who are trusting him. And it's also a word of judgment for those who've rejected him as Savior, who believe that they should be the king of their own universe. See, Jesus' arrival as the true king means judgment for those who are rival kings. I can't help, one of my favorite, I can't help but think about uh, the movie Robin Hood. It's one of my favorite Disney movies growing up. If you know the kind of subplot to that, it kind of sets it all up. Any other Robin Hood fans? Okay, like six of us, that's great. <laughs> the rest of you, hopefully you've at least seen the movie. Um, but in the movie, in the background, King Richard, who is the rightful king, he leaves for a period of time, and in that interim period, Prince John, good for nothing, I won't sing it, just because I feel like it, he takes over and he thinks he knows how to rule better. And so he taxes the life out of the citizens and everything is a disaster until King Richard comes and makes things right. But at the very end of the movie, right, that's good news for the townspeople who've suffered, it's bad news for the one who tried to take the throne. He receives judgment. And that's where our passage ends today. See, the king pronounces judgment on the religious leaders of the day who have re rejected him as king. And the judgment that is coming for those who decide they would rule better than the true king, that judgment is also going to be a foreshadow. It's going to be a little sample to help us know what to expect on the day when that king returns again. What will happen when Jesus comes back to make all things right? 
If you've been with us for the last, I don't know, eight or nine months or so, we've walked through the whole book of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark starts off with Jesus coming in and making an announcement. Mark 1.15, he says, The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. And then he goes on for the next several chapters to show with his authority that he is the rightful king of that kingdom, that he is the very son of God, that he is sovereign and authoritative over everything seen and unseen. There's not a single thing that this king does not rule over. And then over the last couple of months, we've seen that there's a shift of an invitation to follow this king. But to follow this king does not mean maybe what you thought it meant. It means to follow him into self-denial, into sacrifice, into service. And in surrendering your life, you actually will find life in the end. But threaded throughout the entire book, Jesus has come up against one group of people that especially has been highlighted the last couple of weeks. One group of people, the religious leaders in the institution, who have consistently rejected him, his claims, denied him, pushed against him, argued him, tried to trap him. And they've come together and plotted to even kill him. And this morning, our passage starts out with a word of judgment against them. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 13, where Lana just read for us, starting in verses 1 and 2. As Jesus was leaving this temple, and if you remember from the last couple of weeks, it's been argument after argument. The, the different religious leadership groups are coming, sending their best to try to trap Jesus. And Jesus dodges every bit of it masterfully and turns it back on them. As he's leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. One of the disciples, who we don't know which one, is just amazed, right, at the beauty of this building, and you would be too. Historian Josephus talks about travelers coming on the road to Jerusalem, and as you saw the temple off glittering in the distance, you would have thought you were approaching a golden mountain that was capped with white snow. It was stunning. Widely recognized as one of the ancient wonders of that day. Just a beautiful building. Gold-plated, everything was dazzling. And the stones were massive. They say that some of the biggest ones were 30, 40 feet in length. I have no idea how they transported them. I have no idea how they did it. It's amazing. Huge, beautiful building. And Jesus' word is that not one of them will be left on top of each other. Total destruction is coming. But the main point is not simply that the building itself will be destroyed, but what the building symbolizes, or better yet, what it has come to symbolize. And it represents, it's a symbolic word of judgment against the religious leaders who led from that temple and who rejected Jesus as king. Jesus came to his own people and his own people rejected him. So Jesus and his disciples head out to the Mount of Olives, which gives you this kind of panoramic view of the city, and you've got a great view of the temple itself. And as Jesus, verse 3 and 4, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew came and asked him privately. They said, tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Naturally, Jesus has just said this temple is going to be destroyed and their first question is, when and how are we going to know when that's going to happen? 
They ask him these two questions. When will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? Number two, what will be the sign that all these things are going to happen? What will give us the clues that this moment is coming? Matthew 24, which is kind of a parallel passage to this, Matthew 24 and Mark 13 uh, tell virtually the same, they tell the same story, maybe just a few little differences. Matthew 24 records their questions this way. When will this happen? Same context. When will the temple be destroyed? But then he says, what will, the sign, what will be the sign of your coming and your arrival at the end of the age? And Jesus' answer to those questions is actually really long and really complicated. This is widely considered the most challenging passage to understand and interpret in the whole book of Mark, and it's on the list for the whole Bible. So buckle up. I hope you don't have lunch plans. We got about three hours. Let's go. All right? To answer, well, actually, before we do that, let's just, let's just stop here. There's two, two separate questions they seem to be asking. The destruction of the temple and the sign that's going to come with it. But Matthew shows us they associated it not just with the destruction of the temple, but they're also thinking that the destruction of the temple is going to happen or potentially even be the cause to bring about the end of the age. They see those things as one event. The problem is we know, thanks to archaeology and history, that in the year 70 AD, the Roman army led by uh, its commander, Titus, who later becomes emperor, surrounds Jerusalem, lays siege to it, totally destroys the city, and totally destroys the temple, not leaving one stone on top of the other. First question we know has happened in the year 70. However, the second question, we're still waiting on an answer for. Christ has not yet returned. We are not yet, as his people, glorified. Sin has not yet been eradicated from this world. We still taste sin and suffering and death all around us. Tears and pain, all of those things go away when Jesus is going to return. Things are not yet as they should be, and so we're still looking ahead to Jesus' return. 2,000 years later, it's clear that there was a gap between these two events that they thought would happen at the same time. As we work through some of the pieces of this passage, there are a number of really challenging interpretive uh, issues. There's a lot of different rabbit holes we could dive down, and I encourage you to dive down those rabbit holes. Grab a study Bible. Talk about it with your community group. Find somebody else who gets excited about trying to figure out all these different details, and they are very, very important. However, for our time together, I want to try and, and, and stay maybe looking at the forest instead of some of the individual trees and understand what is it that's going on here in this big picture. Because to understand this whole chapter, there's probably three primary ways that people have understood uh, how to, to, to read and understand what's going on here in this passage. The first one is to understand that everything that Jesus refers to has already taken place in the year 70 with the destruction of the physical temple. And if you read it that way, you've got a couple problems. Other, perhaps extreme, is to say that nothing has to do with 70 AD, and Jesus is only talking entirely about the future that's going to happen at the return of Christ. And if you do that, you have some problems, which means that the third road is somewhere in the middle, and there's a lot of space in between, which is to say that at certain points here, he's talking about 
what happened in the year 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. But then at some point, he switches over and he starts talking about his future return. But he does it in such a way that is not super clear. He doesn't say, okay, guys, so for question one, let me answer this question. And for question two, let me answer this question. He kind of answers them in the way the disciples thought they would be as one question, but he does it so that it's two questions. If you're confused, join the club. It's okay. There's a reason, I think, that Jesus does this. Because it actually is totally in line with the way that, that many biblical prophecies take place. See, many biblical prophecies use something that's called typology, which means that biblical authors will write in such a way that a previous experience, something that has already happened, shapes the expectation for what will happen in the future. To use maybe a modern way of understanding it, Mark Twain described history by saying history doesn't always repeat itself, but it sure often rhymes. So what you have, does that make sense? History doesn't always just repeat itself, but it sure sounds the same. It rhymes as you go throughout it. The Bible often uses the same thing with biblical prophecy. Let me give you an example using the Exodus. The Exodus, when God came and delivered Israel from its enslavement in Egypt. You all know that story. He comes and he brings the plagues and he brings Israel out of slavery and he brings them through the Red Sea and he parts the sea and he carries them through and he brings them into the new land. And this is the prototype of deliverance. This is how God saves his people. So that in the future, as you come to Psalms like Psalm 77, you hear the psalmist, his name is Asaph, and he is in distress. He's crying out to the Lord, and he says this at the very end. He says, your path, God, led through the sea, your way through mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And what does that sound like? That sounds like the Exodus. But Asaph is drawing on that event and saying, just like you did there, just the same way that you delivered your people, I expect that you are going to deliver in the same way now. And he uses language that sounds a lot like Exodus, even though Asaph, I'm sure, is not enslaved in Egypt physically, literally, and he's not being carried through the sea. It becomes this metaphor that's able to be understood that the way that God has delivered his people is the way he will continue to deliver his people. The same is true in this passage, except instead of deliverance, it's judgment. So that what we now look back on and see at 70, the destruction of the temple, the judgment that comes on those who have rejected Jesus as king, is a little bit of a sample. It's a little bit of a taste of what we can experience, we can expect to experience when Jesus returns in glory one day at his second coming. Because as we said earlier, the second coming of Jesus is incredible news for us who are looking to Christ in faith. But it's a word of judgment. The true king arriving, when somebody else is sitting on his throne, there's going to be a problem. Judgment is coming. And you can actually expect it to be very similar to all the other moments of judgment that have come throughout the rest of the Bible. And so as you look at this passage, again, if we kind of stay high level Jesus shows us, he's talking to his disciples, who for them, the judgment on the city, the temple in the city of Jerusalem is still out ahead of them. 
But he tells them there's going to be some warning signs that you can look for. If you look down through your passage, you can see in verses 7 and 8 that you can expect wars and rumors of wars. But don't be alarmed. These things must happen. Nation will rise against nation. You'll expect natural disasters, verse 8. Earthquakes in various places and famines. These are just the beginnings of birth pains. Verses 5 and then 21 and 22 tell us to watch out. It says to the disciples, watch out because before the temple is destroyed, there are going to be people that are going to try and deceive you. There's going to be false messiahs that are going to come and claim, follow me. I'm the real messiah, not Jesus. Verses 9 to 13 talks about persecution for the name of Christ. That it's not just even out there, but it's even inside the family unit. That there will be suffering, verses 18 to 20, and we're to pray that it, that they were to pray that it doesn't happen, that the temple destruction doesn't happen in winter because it's going to be brutal. I mean, great suffering. And then he warns them of something that is called the abomination of desolation, which is, again, playing back off of a prophecy that took place in Daniel. And what Daniel's referring to was fulfilled in the, about the year 168 B.C., when the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes comes into the temple, claiming his name literally means, like a, it's a divine name, claiming to be God, slaughters unclean pigs on the altar in the temple, sprinkles unclean filth water all over the temple to desecrate it, and sets up a statue of Zeus. Blatant anti-God idolatry. And he says, you can expect stuff like that to happen right before the temple is destroyed. And he gives these signs that the disciples are to look for before the destruction of the temple. But those signs are also supposed to create an expectation for where we stand now as we look ahead and we say, well, what's it going to be like when Jesus returns to bring full judgment and full salvation? Salvation for his people and judgment for those who've rejected him. And the answer is, you should probably expect some of these similar things. So let's think back about those signs again. Wars, natural disasters, suffering, persecution of God's people, idolatry. They're all happening now, aren't they? And they've happened in every generation since Jesus spoke these words. And that's exactly the point. Jesus' whole point at the end of this passage, as you see it in verses 32 and 33, is this. But about that day, which is code word for the day that Jesus returns, no one knows when that will be. Verse 33, you do not know what time that will come. See, Jesus said to his disciples, you'll see some signs that'll clearly point out to you the temple's about to be destroyed. But you won't see signs necessarily. You can't pinpoint when he will return. In typical Jesus fashion, his concern is not necessarily to answer the disciples' original question. They come to him and say, when will this happen? But Jesus takes and he actually flips a different question to them says, instead of trying to nail down exactly when this is going to happen, I've got a better question for you. 
How then should you live while you wait for his return? And this is the piece that's repeated over and over again throughout this passage. And every time the return of Christ is brought up through the rest of Scripture. You see, it's never brought up so that you and I could just pinpoint, we could create a chart and we could map out exactly when it's going to happen. Because Jesus just very clearly said, you will never know. No one knows. You don't know the time when I'll return. But here's a better question. Since I am returning one day, how will you live while you wait? The return of Christ is to impact every decision that we make with our finances, our parenting, our lifestyle choices. Everything is reshaped by the fact that Jesus is coming back soon. And if you were to come back today, the question would be, how would that change your priorities? How would that change your schedule? The way you view your resources? If it were today. I remember one of my very first college uh, Bible class professors who happens to be none other than our very own Dr. Bill Cruson. He was, he was my first prophet I can remember walking into Bible school. I remember him saying a phrase that was passed to him, uh, and, and it stuck with me. And I get to pass it to you guys and steal his credit. He said, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Simple, right? But so important as we go to read Scripture. Here's why that's so important. There are many complicated pieces of Scripture which we should absolutely study. Mark 13 include, excuse me, included. However, there are many things that are super plain. And those are given to us plainly because they are intended to be the main things that we don't miss. You see, God could have, if he wanted to, brought absolute clarity, given us timelines and charts, and laid out every answer to every possible question you could ever have. And he chose in his wisdom to not do that. But he does give us certain things that he does not want us to miss. And when it comes to this study of end times, the study of the time in which we would say is return of Christ marks that. The point is not nailing down when, but the point every time it's brought up is to ask the question, how then will you live if it is today? Because it could be. Every time I think about the return of Jesus, uh, I get this picture of uh, when my parents or my wife's parents come to visit. We eventually just, we, we don't keep that timing a secret on our end, like maybe you know, God has kept chosen to not tell us the timing because we get irritated with our kids asking, are they here? Are they coming? Are they coming? Are they coming? Are they coming? But when you get out your phone and you, you do that little stalking app, I mean, uh, find your friend's app or whatever it is, stalking app, let's call it, um, and you see that they're coming close, we tell the kids and they lose their minds. They hover by the front door. They are eager. They are excited. They've already cleaned up all their toys, and they've got whatever craft or whatever card they've made for their, for their grandparents. They go, and they just stand at the door eager. And when they see that car pull in the driveway, they explode with excitement. Why? Because there is an anticipation prompted by love to see someone that has reshaped their actions and their excitement, and everything is fixated on this one thing as they look for their parents' arrival. The grandparents arrive. 
And really, that's how we ought to be in our understanding of Jesus' promised return. His soon return ought to keep us watching, alert, active, not in the way, if you look at the end of this passage, there's, a, there's a, the metaphor, the idea of, of a, a master leaving his home into the, entrusted to his servants. And I think the way that our kind of employment world works makes that a little dangerous. Because I, I, the number of times growing up in high school and in colleges, I worked different jobs, that a coworker will look at me and say something like this, oh, the boss is coming, look busy. And you've got to fake like you're doing something. That permeates our understanding, but that's a fear-driven response. I don't want Jesus to come back and catch me. Ah, I've got I to look busy. I've got to do something. And that's motivated by fear, not motivated by love and excitement and a passion to see our Savior face-to-face and to be found faithful doing what he has called us to do. Do you see how there's a subtle difference that changes everything? God is not standing up there with a hammer just hoping you screw up. But he longs to see you and his desire is that his love for you, his kindness towards you would create that love and response that we would be eager to see him, eager to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so what does this passage say to us about how we ought to live in between? If that's the emphasis that the Bible uses every time when it talks about the return of Christ, What does this passage have to say to us? And it's repeated over and over again. It's two phrases. Watch out and wake up. Watch out and wake up. They're translated multiple different phrases in English, but they're the same Greek words. The first one is watch out. It's the Greek word blepo. And you find it in verse 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. You find it in verse 9. It says it's translated, you must be on your guard. It's the same phrase. Watch out because you will be persecuted. Verse 23, watch out, false messiahs are coming after you. Verse 33, watch out, you don't know when Jesus will return. And specifically, there's two things we're told to watch out for. The first is deception, and the second is suffering. And we need to hear both of those. The first call, watch out, deception. Watch out for deception. Because in the meanwhile, while we wait, there will be those who will try to deceive us. Because there is, whether you believe it or not, an enemy who wants to devour you, who prowls around like a lion and wants to destroy you. And he will use all sorts of smooth talk and great-sounding arguments to do that. Messages that say things in our world around us that all religions are essentially the same. Messages that are a little more subtle that say that if you're a Christian, your life should be more comfortable and easy. You should have a prosperous life. You shouldn't suffer, even though Jesus has said the exact opposite. Messages that say you can have your life, your wealth, your, your, your power, your everything, and just add Jesus to that. It doesn't have to touch every area of your life. They are lies from the enemy that wants you to be deceived that would render you powerless in this world. So what do we do if we're watching out for being deceived? Well, how do you know what any fake is? You study the real deal. You immerse yourself in God's word. You you sit and, and carve out times of prayer where you can share your heart with God and you can receive and listen where you have intimacy with God. 
so that as you know what he has to say, you can identify any false. We could spend hours trying to name false worldviews and false teaching, false prophecy all around us. But focus your heart and your mind. Fix your eyes on Jesus and what is true. And you will be able to identify by the Spirit's leading all the lies around you. And do that together. Because as you know from all the Animal Planet videos, who do the predators go after? That lone straggler off by itself. They seclude him from the herd and they devour him. You cannot follow Jesus by yourself. I don't care how strong you think you are, you cannot do it. You need the church and the church needs you. You need community of people around you who will speak into your life, who will help point out warnings. And the second piece, who will also help you see places where you need to wake up. The second warning you see, it's the Greek word gregoreo, where you get the word named Gregory from, watchful. It's to wake up. Verse 33, be alert, it's translated. Verse 35, keep watch. Verse 36, watch. The opposite of, of being awake and alert is being drunk and asleep. This is a call to sober up, to wake up. This is so powerful. This is, I think, the most important call on us in the suburban American church today out of this passage. Because the message is Jesus says, I'm coming back soon. And I think we care more about how the Phillies did yesterday than about his return, who the Eagles drafted, about how my kid's schedule is so full, about going to the gym and worrying about retirement and finances, making improvements on our homes. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with those things. These are good gifts that God has given to us. I think it's very unhelpful for us to think nothing in this life matters, it's just invisible, abstract things we have to think about. Stuff of earth means nothing. No, it matters when it's put in its right spot. They're great gifts, they're terrible gods. They're great gifts when used in surrender and submission to Jesus so that these things are never the end in themselves, but they're always a means to make much of Jesus, to see his kingdom come, to see his will be done, to bring glory to him. That's the perspective that Jesus' return comes. It reshapes the way that you see all the material possessions and all the experiences that you have in this world. I can't help but think, though, that we have been lulled to sleep by comfort and pleasure. We enjoy being sedated on good food and sex and, and awesome vacations and great things. And the call here is to wake up. We have apathy because our preferences aren't being met and people aren't doing things the way that we want in the church. And so we become apathetic. And what happens out of that is professionalism. And professionalism is a poison in the American church. When I say professionalism, here's what I mean by that. Professionalism is, well, we'll just let the pastors and the staff do it. We're paying them, aren't we, to do that? Actually, no, you're not. The book of Ephesians tells you that we, as church leaders, are not called to do ministry, but to equip you to do ministry. You cannot sit back. The call to wake up is to get involved, to be here, to be present, to not sit back. This is not a movie theater. This is a family. This is a body. What if, just, what if your body decided it was just going to tap out for a little bit? 
some part. You know, you're, you're, you're going to go to the doctor immediately. That's not how it's supposed to be. Friends, we cannot be the body of Christ in the way that we are called to be without you. You, I don't care who, uh, I put every one of you, without you. And this is why at the end, in verse 33 to 34, we hear this warning. Be on guard, be alert, watch out, wake up. You do not know when that time will come when Jesus will return. It's like a man going away and he leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. To wait for Jesus' return cannot be passive, but it must be active. Jesus has given you an assigned task to do while, he, while you wait for his return. He has put you in your neighborhood. He has put you in your workplace. He has put you at your school, on your team. He has put you exactly where you are that you might be a light in dark places, that you might love people sacrificially, that you might with your words articulate that there is a God who loves them and who has made a way for you to be made right with him, that there is forgiveness and freedom from the shame and sin that we live in. You have been given gifts. Too many of us are afraid to use them because we don't want to fail or we're not sure if we're good enough. One of the most amazing things about this passage is the passage that comes right before it, which we looked at last week. It was the story of the old, of the widow, the poor widow who had two little coins that weren't even enough to buy a piece of bread but she surrenders them to God and trusts him with everything. The call today, Jesus is returning, is a call to be faithful, to be obedient, to surrender your two copper coins to Jesus in whatever that means. And the encouragement from this passage while there's a lot of scary warnings that take place, if you were to go back through this passage, you would see time after time encouragement, encouragement from God. You would see in verse 11 that you have the spirit that goes with you. You see the mercy of God that he is actively involved in holding back evil and restraining it so it's not as bad as it could be. And the end is so clear that the people of God, when Jesus returns, do not experience the judgment because Jesus has already experienced it for you. That at the cross, Jesus took the wrath that was deserving of us, those who pretended to be rival kings, who have since bowed the knee to Jesus in faith and said, you are the king. We experience forgiveness and full pardon. And that message is available for your friends and your neighbors. Jesus is returning. We say this over and over again. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ is coming again. May we be found faithful to live every moment in surrender to Jesus. Like little kids awaiting his return. By faithfully obeying him discovering and serving the different ways that God has specifically designed each one of us for 
and to the best of our ability with the power of the Spirit being faithful to do what he has called us to do until the moment when we see him face to face. And by his grace, hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, this is, this is challenging to understand and yet simple at the base message that you've given to us this morning. You have promised to return. And Lord, we are eager to see you because when we see you, our salvation will be made complete. We will see our Savior face to face. We will be with you. Lord, may that love that you have shown us and the love that it has awakened in us in return for you, may it move us to action. May we serve you faithfully in whatever you put in front of us. You have given each of us a task to do. And Lord, we have to discover that. We can't discover that even on our own. We need each other to speak in and encourage one another and point out places where we see that God has gifted each other. Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful to what you have called us until the day you return. We pray these things for your glory ultimately above all else and for our good, for our joy as we participate in what you're doing and for the sake of the world around us who has yet to hear of your love for them. In Jesus' name, amen.